0: This time, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. O oh Lord, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word. We thank Thee that it is plain enough for us to see and know the truth, and what we don't see and know yet, show it to us. Right. Forgive us, for we have neglected this precious gift and heritage from Your finger that has given us inspired Scripture in our own language. Convict us by Your Spirit to hold it fast and to earnestly contend for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Preterists have timing words and phrases on which they build their house of cards. We want to knock that house of cards down with the sword of the Spirit. I've given you many different ways in which we can do that, and here's another one. Preterists ignore the timing statements that oppose them. In Matthew chapter 25, we have the kingdom of heaven being compared to ten virgins in the first verse. And these virgins were some wise and some foolish, and some had oil for their lamps, and some did not, and they were to wait for the bridegroom. It tells us in the fifth verse, While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. So here is a verse about timing that is referring to the bridegroom tarrying, taking his time, not coming as quickly as he could have, and it's in a parable about the Lord's coming. And of course, it's one of the timing phrases in the Bible that they don't spend any time on because it's one more of length than of imminency. Or we look at the 19th verse with the parable of the talents. And it says in the 19th verse, After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. If you're going to study the Word of God and pull out timing phrases, just be honest and pull them all out so that we can get a balanced position with the balance of truth. Luke in the 19th chapter when he gives his version of this same parable where it's called the parable of the pounds those that were there made some false assumptions about his imminent return and Jesus describes the noble man as going into a far country long enough in his absence for them to have to occupy until he comes these are expressions of scripture that they don't spend any time on because it doesn't serve their purpose. I have mentioned to you that Preterists must time Revelation before 70 AD in its writing. And I'm thankful for the brother at break time that said, I've wondered why some cared about when John wrote the book of Revelation that he wrote it either before 70 AD or after 70 AD. What difference does it really make? Well, if you're a preterist, it can't be written one minute after 70 AD, or you're entirely wrong about your interpretation of the Lord's coming and the prophecies made in that book. So they go to great ends. And I've mentioned this to you before, and I'm not going to deal with it at length. I'll have some Some links to websites where men have dealt with it at length, and here's where we appreciate the premillennialists who have believed along with the rest of Christians for 2,000 years that it was written 20 years after 70 AD, and they've, they have done some work in establishing that fact from history and from internal evidence. But preterists will go to great ends to try to find internal evidence, and they will scrape at anything, and to try to find external evidence to have that book written in 65 AD because if it happened to be written after 70 their whole system just collapses Right. they have to have it written before 70 AD I appreciate you now understanding that those of you who knew about that controversy preterists will limit scripture statements in their application to only those who first read them this is what they call audience relevance that When an apostle uses the first person for himself and his audience, we, then that means that if it's a prophecy about the coming of the Lord, then that means the Lord has to come while he and his audience are alive. So when they don't have words like soon or shortly or at hand or quickly, they will look at the pronouns and if they're in the first person then they will presume that that means it has to happen during the lifetime of the the writer of the epistle and those readers that read it at first. They say prophecy had primary, if not exclusive, value for those reading it initially and no others. It's for them. So it's part of their timing aspect to the New Testament to make it first generation, first century, 70 AD only by words like soon, or shortly, or at hand, or quickly, or the use of pronouns and their concept of audience relevance, relevance, meaning that the New Testament was written in such a way that it had specific meaning for the first readers of it. Let me show you. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. When they get done with the Bible... It has no value for you. Right. I mean, there's nothing left in it for you. There's no hope. There's no future events. And really, it was just intended for the first readers anyway. The first and second grammatical person is to them an overwhelming proof that a prophecy of the New Testament had to be fulfilled in the lifetimes of the writer and the readers. First John two, Beloved, now are we... There's a first-person pronoun... Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The audience relevance, according to them, for this verse teaches that this was an event of the Lord Jesus Christ coming, appearing, and changing them to look like Jesus that happened during the lifetimes of John and his initial audience. I give you an example. Let me give you another one. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The passage that was read to us this morning, and the passage that is over here to your left and my right, of those words being written in the clouds of heaven. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain... Under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain. Jesus Christ had to have come in the lifetimes of the Corinthians and Paul, because he said, Then we which are alive and remain. Do you follow? I hope you can see how they're trying to corrupt the Bible and their illogic about the Bible's terminology. And there's more that I could show you. Now, if they would have read the Old Testament, they would know that this was a hermeneutical first. They would know that interpreting the Bible this way makes no sense. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I hope you see what they're doing with Scripture. They're taking it out of your hands. It's not for you. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, I read this passage twice. I read it a week ago. I read it this morning. And we're going to look at it again in verses 25 through 27, looking at those pronouns and seeing what their illogic does for them when they apply it to the whole Bible. Verse 25, When thou... That's a specific group of people being addressed by Moses before he died. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye, same group of people, shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye, that is the second person for the group of Israelites that Moses was addressing, shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you, that is those that were living when Moses was alive, among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And yet, as I showed you, this prophecy wasn't fulfilled by the Assyrians for 800 years, the Babylonians for 1,000, and the Romans for fifteen or 1,600 years. So what happened to the audience relevance? It was relevant for every one of those generations. Not that the whole prophecy would be fulfilled, but some measure of it would be fulfilled on every generation that made false gods and turned their backs upon the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. Right. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is why we study the Bible. We just don't bring sound bites to the table. No one has believed their doctrine except a few nuts. Deuteronomy 28, 68. This chapter of Deuteronomy 28 is a very long chapter, and it describes in the first 14 verses, God's blessing upon Israel if they would obey Him. In verses 15 through the end, it's God's curses upon Israel if they disobey Him. And it's a very sober chapter to read, but the preterists believe that it's describing as it gets toward the end, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and I agree with them. Right? Because it says in verse 68... And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships. By the way whereof I spake unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no men shall buy you. Because the supply of slaves in economic terms would be so great that the price for slaves would fall until there would be no desire, no demand for them. The supply would exceed the demand. When did that happen? In 70 AD. Titus and the Roman legions killed 1.1 million. There were 100,000 or so left from the city of Jerusalem. And what he didn't want to drag through the streets of Rome in his victorious processional parade, he sold into Egypt. So that the supply drove the price down of slaves in fulfillment of this verse. But let's look at the pronouns in the verse. It doesn't say they, referring to a third person, group of people, living in 70 A.D. It says, "...and the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships, by the way whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again, and there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and women and no man shall buy you. The point being, if we read the Bible, we would find where pronouns are used in the first and second person. Here, the second person, ye and thou and your, describing a generation that is 1,600 years away. So their audience relevance isn't as powerful as they think it is. In fact, it has no power at all. Look at Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. I love the Bible. For those of you that love the Bible with me, you're going to love this one. Genesis chapter 50. And the 25th verse. Joseph's about to die, and he gets an oath out of his brothers. Look at verse 24. Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Now there are second person pronouns. God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. What did Joseph mean by those words? God will surely visit you. This is talking about a coming of God. Did God come during their lifetimes? No. Did God come during their children's lifetimes? No. God still had 150 years before he was going to visit Egypt and bring Joseph out of it. When and how did God visit? He visited 150 years later or so by Moses. Who carried up his bones? Moses and the people of Israel that left under his leadership. God did not say, the Bible does not say, God shall visit your posterity and your posterity shall carry up my bones from hence. And though God did not say it that way, Joseph was under no misunderstanding about what was to happen. Why? because God had already told Abraham exactly how long they would be in Egypt, and it precluded that generation. That is how we read and study the Bible. Audience relevance. If audience relevance, the way they practice it, is true, then none of them are saved. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I'm so thankful that God wrote the Bible so much of it in the first and second person because it makes it so applicable to us and it makes it so personal to us that He's addressing you and me from the pages of Scripture through the original audience. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we... Now we're talking 700 B.C. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is an author 700 years B.C. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. In 700 B.C., he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Notice these present tense and perfect tense verbs. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all the past and perfect tenses in 700 B.C. about an event 700 years later. Audience relevance. That passage is for all of us. It was prophetic, but it used the perfect tense. And it used the second person and the first person as it describes what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. Come back to First Thessalonians, please. Oh, I love our Bible. And I mean that. I just... It's my Bible. He wrote to me. Did He write to you? He did write to you. It's so personal. And He wrote it in such a way that we understand it that way. You don't have a problem with those verses. They create a problem in the Bible. There is no problem. Christians have read it for 2,000 years not thinking... That the whole New Testament was buried back in 70 AD, but it was for them. They'd give their lives for what it said about them. Right. We've been here before, First Thessalonians chapter four, because I've already read this to you, verse 15, "For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians 4:15, Paul writing the Thessalonians, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep." They assume that that means Paul understood that Jesus would come in his lifetime. Let's see what he really says. Or if he was using that kind of language to separate two groups of people. He used the pronouns the way he did in 1 Thessalonians to separate those Thessalonian saints that had already died from those that were alive so that they could rejoice that God was coming back for the ones that they cared about and that brought the sorrow to their hearts. The ones that the Thessalonians cared about and that brought sorrow to their hearts were brethren who had already died and were in the church cemetery. And he points out when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, if we happen to be still around, He's going to go after them first. He has not forgotten dead relatives. They will be first. He's going to overlook you for a moment or two while he goes and pulls them out of the ground. And that's why we have those different pronouns. Paul is not suggesting that he thought the Lord was going to return during his lifetime because 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us otherwise, that the coming of the Lord was not at hand. And then we have this, and it's bad for preterists. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six. 1 Corinthians six fourteen, and God hath both raised up the Lord, what is that? The resurrection from the dead, and will also raise up us by his own power. God is going to raise Paul and the Corinthians from the dead. But he wrote the Thessalonians, We which are alive and remain. Do you have any problem with those two verses? I hope you're slightly amused as to how pitiful and what lengths men will go to to defend a Jesuit doctrine. If their concept of audience revelance stands in even one place, where there are no other limiting factors in the context to make it for that audience only in its primary sense, then the Bible is totally irrelevant for all other generations. Preterists get so worked up about the last days. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. The last days must mean there's hardly going to be a tomorrow. The Lord's got to return. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. So who did the speaking in that second verse? The Lord Jesus Christ. Approximately, when was that? 30 A.D. So, 30 AD was called the last days wasn't it not just 70 AD but when Jesus when God spake to Israel by his son was called the last days okay there's a number of verses like that first john chapter 2 1 john 218 little children it is the last time and as ye have heard that antichrist shall come even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. There's a few years later when John wrote the first epistle of John. And he said, it's the last time. But then, when we go to First Timothy chapter 4, and it's what we ended the first service with this morning, First Timothy 4.1 tells us, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. So there were last days in 30 A.D., last days in 65 A.D. or so, whenever John wrote First John, and there were last days in latter times that hadn't occurred yet when the Apostle Paul was ready to die. Those words simply mean that the last dispensation of God's dealings with men proceed from John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ at His first coming to His second coming. This whole period of time is the last days because this is the last Dispensation. this is the last kingdom that God's going to give this is the last way that God is going to deal with men the old testament of the Jews went away and these are the last times those were the former times those were the times of Israel and before that it was the times of the patriarchs we basically believe in about three dispensations from Adam to Moses from Moses to John the Baptist and from John the Baptist and his cousin the Lord Jesus Christ to the second coming of the Lord. And that last third of the earth's history are the last days. It doesn't mean 70 AD is the deadline. And it has to happen before 70 AD. So when it says that upon, that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, it says, upon the Corinthians, the ends of the world had come. The last 2,000 years have been the ends of the world because this is the end time of the world. It's not the time of Israel. It's not the time of the patriarchs. It's the last time. The period of time of the Lord Jesus Christ between His first and His second coming, which will be wrapped up with His second coming. They get so worked up about words like that. But we, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're just, we're just comparing scripture with scripture today. And rejoicing in how God has made things in such a way that we understand them. And the Christians before us have understood them, even though on many points we might differ with many of those Christians before us. Second Corinthians 6-2. Let's get one for the context. We then, as workers together with Him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. This is Paul's ministry pressing believers not to receive the grace of God in vain, but to fulfill their salvation. And then in parentheses, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do we get worked up that there was only one 24-hour period in which to be saved? No, we don't. Turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Let's go to argument number 3. Argument number 3 is preterism refuted by Daniel. Thus far in our study of preterism and the promised events of the New Testament that are yet to occur, we have proven preterism wrong, first of all, by the gospel statements about the second coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, the day of judgment of all the righteous and the wicked, the new heavens and the new earth, those New Testament statements which have not occurred prove preterism wrong. That's the first approach we took. The second approach we took was, I'm sorry that it was so confusing, but from 20 different directions we proved that their timing texts carry no weight at all to force or require or limit a first century second coming, which didn't happen anyway as everyone knows, except the most deluded, being preterists when it comes to Bible prophecy. Preterism refuted by Daniel. Preterists should start in Daniel, because Jesus told them to start in Daniel. Do you know that in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, I'll read it to you, which is a prophecy of the Olivet Discourse, of the great tribulation that was coming, that Jesus announced, He said in the 15th verse, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. It's spoken of by Daniel. And Jesus said, in other words, Go read Daniel, and you'll know what I'm talking about when I use the obscure language, Abomination of Desolation. Mark's account of the very same sermon used the very same terminology. Go read Daniel to know what I mean by the words abomination of desolation. When Luke recorded that same sermon, he didn't say go read Daniel because Luke said, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies. And that tells us what the abomination of desolation was. The abominable pagan armies of Rome desolating the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Well, they, they ought to start in Daniel. It's so difficult to meet Bible readers that want to start in the New Testament to learn Bible prophecy and don't want to go back to Daniel where you can lay a great foundation. There's so much they could learn about New Testament prophecies by understanding Daniel. Daniel. Revelation's the last place you want to go because it's the last book of the Bible. Paul's man of sin and John's beast were identified 500 years earlier by the prophet Daniel. Right. Daniel's prophecies cover everything. You're you're in the book of Daniel. It's got 12 chapters, six great stories, and six great prophecies. The first six chapters are six stories: Daniel and the lion's den, the three Hebrew men in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. Great stories. Then we have six chapters that are wonderful. And Daniel chapters 8 through 12, and chapter 12 tells us when these prophecies end, that when the power of the holy people were scattered, all the things written in 8 through 12 would have been fulfilled. Because it's about the nation of Israel. But Daniel chapter 7 is a little different. It's a prophecy of Gentile world history affecting the saints of God. Because they're a very different group of people here. It's a group of people to whom the kingdom was to be given. And they would reign with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. And those are his New Testament saints made up of Jews and Gentiles. You can read that in verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. See, the Jews lost the kingdom. But there was a time coming in which the saints would possess the kingdom. And the, and the saints have possessed the kingdom now for 2,000 years, and that kingdom will be delivered up to God by the Lord Jesus Christ at His is second coming according to what we've read in 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end, and he shall deliver up the kingdom to God. Amen. Daniel chapter 7 identifies Paul's man of sin. And I know it's been a long time. It's been about eight years since on Wednesday evenings we went through the prophecies of Daniel, and we had a wonderful time doing it if you can remember. The outlines are available and we will go through it again as the Lord gives us opportunity. But right now, we just want to consider a couple of things. Daniel 7 identifies Paul's man of sin and it hints at and tells us indirectly, it's easy to figure it out, what was the restraining power that was in place that kept the man of sin from being revealed. The beast's that Daniel describes in the early verses of this chapter are picked up by John in the book of Revelation. So that you can already know what he's talking about when you go into Revelation chapter 13 and you see a beast rising with certain characteristics, you can find all of them right here in the first six verses of Daniel chapter 7. And that's why you ought to start in Daniel. Because the Bible is written by one author, Almighty God, through the Holy Spirit, it's all going to agree. Now there are four beasts. The four beasts are described in verse 3 as coming up out of the sea. The first one was like a lion. Verse 4. I'm just going to quickly go over this. This is not a sermon on Daniel 7. I've done it before. And we'll do it again, but not for right now. Right now I just want to show you how that this prophecy, which is one of my favorites, because of what it does about the man of sin and about the book of Revelation. We want to know Daniel 7. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings, and it's the Nebuchadnezzar Babylonian Chaldean Empire. Number two, you know, we've already learned in the book of Daniel these kingdoms out of chapter 2. Do you remember? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he had a vision with that great image, and the, the head was made of gold and the shoulders of silver and the belly and chest of brass and the legs of iron and clay. And God told Daniel to tell Nebuchadnezzar, I've given you a picture of everything that there is to come. You are the head of gold. Isn't that nice? And the Lord tells us when to start counting empires. And so we already know that by the time we get to Daniel seven. So while I'm saying they ought to read Daniel before they read Revelation, you ought to read Daniel two before you read Daniel seven. Does that is that too deep for anyone here? If you read Daniel two before you got to seven, seven's easy. Five. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. Why does it tell us that, that it raised itself up on one side? First of all, what empire is that? Media Persia. Well, you use two words. Does that mean that this bear had two sides, and it rose up on one side? Yeah. It started out with the media power of Darius the Mede, but it ended up be- with greater power in the Persians because it became the Persian Empire with Cyrus and his descendants. In Daniel chapter 8, it's described as a ram with two horns, and the latter horn came up after the first horn, but the latter horn grew longer and larger and higher. you familiar with that? In Daniel 8, that's Media Persia. It started out as the Median Empire, but the Persians came on strong later And became the influential force in the media Persian Empire. All told to us right here by horns and heads and and beasts. What's a beast? Do you know what the futurists have told you for as long as you've lived, if you've read Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and the others? A beast is a coming head of the United Nations. He might have a glowing or blinking 666 in his forehead. But a beast in the Bible is just a kingdom. These are just four kingdoms. And they're called four kingdoms if you would read the whole chapter. The third is a leopard which had four heads and it had the wings of a fowl. And that's Alexander the Great's rapacious, fast, ground-covering empire of the Greeks. And then in verse 7, he saw a fourth beast, a dreadful and terrible and strong and iron beast, or kingdom, and it's the Roman. We have Babylon, we have Media Persia, we have Greece, we have Rome. And when he sees the Roman beast, and all I want to do is focus on the points that we want right now, it has ten horns. It has ten horns. When we read Daniel chapter 8, and the he-goat that came from the west, and came and attacked the media Persian empire, who was it? It was a he-goat with a notable horn, singular. Singular a notable horn. It was Alexander the Great. But that notable horn was broken off, and for it sprang up four horns. And so the he-goat was now a beast or a kingdom that had four horns growing out of it, and those four horns represented four minor kingdoms that that beast had evolved into or, or degenerated into after the death of Alexander the Great. It's described in Daniel 8. And we've been over this before. But Daniel sees this fourth beast, which is Rome, and it has ten horns. Ten minor kingdoms. Contemporary to each other. Not consecutive. Contemporary. That means they existed at the same time. When he saw the beast... It had ten horns. It wasn't a beast, and he saw a horn, then it was plucked out, and then he saw another horn, and it was plucked out, and another horn. That would be consecutive. One horn, then another horn, then another. No. He saw a beast with ten horns. When did Rome, and when was Rome, how did Rome degenerate into ten minor kingdoms? When? In 60 A.D.? In 100, in 150, in 200, in 250, in 300, in 350, in 400, in 450, in 476 A.D. In 476 A.D. Now, if that's true, and we're going to assume it's true because it is true and it can be proven just by reading this chapter in Daniel chapter 8 and figuring out horns and heads and this beast that he saw this is not Rome in its power this is Rome degenerated into 10 minor kingdoms and it happened in 476 AD we now have a prophecy that includes the son of man coming to the ancient of days and the judgment being set and the fiery burning that is going to ca- where all the wicked are going to be cast And it had to come after 476 AD. We have just turned preterism upside down on its head. They make those ten horns, ten consecutive Caesars, beginning with Julius Caesar. And number ten is Vespasian. Vespasian initiated the war against the Jews. But this chapter isn't about the Jews. This chapter is about the saints of the Most High God that would have the kingdom of God forever and ever. And a little horn grew up. The beast is a dreadful dragon, and it has ten horns. So Daniel is witnessing the Roman Empire in its decayed state of ancient Europe. Europe in the 6th century, the 5th century. Just like Daniel saw the leopard, and how many heads did it have? Verse 6. The beast had four heads, and it had four wings, because Daniel was seeing the Greek Empire in its degenerate state of being four minor kingdoms. Let's just quickly finish this. This little horn. The little horn of Daniel 7. So many have tried to make the little horn of Daniel 7 the same as the little horn of Daniel 8. And it's a terrible mistake. In Daniel 8, we only have two empires, Media and Persia and Greece the little horn in chapter 8 is the little horn of Greece because it's a little horn that grew out of one of the four horns because it was Antiochus Epiphanes growing out of the Seleucid Kingdom one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire that made havoc of the Jews' worship in Jerusalem in about 175 B.C. which the Maccabees cleansed the temple and that whole chapter ends. For 2,300 days, the temple had been defiled by Antiochus IV of the Seleucid kingdom. But we have another little horn in Daniel 7, and it's not Greek. It's Roman. And it comes after 476 AD. It comes after the Roman Empire has seen its decayed state in ten minor kingdoms. Up came a different kind of a kingdom. And can you think... Of what kind of a kingdom grew out of the decayed Roman Empire that was different, that was arrogant, that was proud, that made war against the saints of God, that spoke blasphemous things against the God of heaven, that tried to change times and laws? I'm going to give you three guesses, and the first two don't count. Did a little kingdom grow out of the decayed Roman Empire that did all those things? Absolutely. The papacy of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Pope of Rome, with his blasphemous mouth, declaring things about himself that were not true in any sense of the word, nor any minister of any gospel or leader of any church. And so we have a prophecy here in Daniel chapter 7 of of contemporary horns. On this decayed Roman Empire, and that did not happen till 476 AD. As soon as we get a prophecy that involves the coming of Jesus Christ with a timetable for it after 70 AD, it turns preterism upside down because preterism assumes and requires all prophecies fulfilled in 70 AD. And this prophecy can't even get going until 476 AD when the man of sin can finally be revealed because the Caesars are taken out of the way, and the Roman Empire degenerates into ten minor kingdoms, that was the restraining power in second Thessalonians chapter two. Paul said, "You know exactly what i 'm talking about." But he didn't write it plainly because the last thing Paul needed was an epistle circulating in the Roman Empire that said when the Roman Empire is taken out of the way. Because if you'll go read Acts chapter 17, the the chief crime that they accused the Thessalonian church of was saying there is another king other than Caesar. So the Apostle Paul was vague. But the man of sin couldn't take power in the city of Rome and over the Roman Empire until the Caesars were out of the way, which is when... The popes, when the the Caesars fled, when the Visigoths overthrew Rome in 476, the power of the Roman Empire was disintegrated into ten minor kingdoms. And among them came up the little horn of Rome, the little horn of Daniel 7, the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2, the beast of revelation. But it didn't happen until 476. Oh, sweet. And do you know what they do? They make the horns consecutive and then they make them individual Caesars. But the horns are not consecutive. They are contemporaries denying them. And more could be said and more should be said and more has been said right here in my notes, but I must end. If the little horn of Daniel 7 is not the papacy, then Daniel 7 settles for an interpretation and application that is far inferior. If the little horn of Daniel 7 is not the papacy, then the Bible misses the greatest enemy ever of New Testament Christianity. If the little horn of Daniel 7 is not the papacy, then the martyrs for 1200 years died in vain believing a lie. If the little horn of Daniel 7 is not the papacy, what is it? Antiochus, Nero, or Vespasian are all ridiculous. I love Daniel 7. And all our brethren in the past knew Daniel 7 a whole lot better than preterists do. Preterists corrupt Daniel 7 as much as the Seventh-day Adventists corrupt Daniel 8. Remember Daniel 8? There's 2,300 days that are confined to the Greek Empire, but they make it years, and they say Jesus returned to earth in 1844. It's called the Great Disappointment of the Seventh-day Adventists because He didn't return. Because the 2,300 days are literal days confined to the Greek Empire. There's more that could be said, and I'm sorry, I need to end right now. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Let's continue to look forward to and love the soon appearing of our Savior.